In a complex world brimming with new ambitions, the best leaders create the best workplaces. This is the Oil & Gas Digital Doers Podcast, where you can hear real stories about digital capabilities and a culture of empowerment with your host, Joanne Meyer. So welcome to the Oil & Gas Global Network's Digital Doers Podcast. And uh, the Oil & Gas Global Network, or OGGN, as we refer to it familiar, familiarly, or it's close enough, I guess, is um, the, the world's largest community of podcasts um, in the world. And uh, like I said, you're listening to the Digital Doers podcast today, and I'm Joanne Meyer, your host, just like the, uh, the gentleman with a really nice English accent uh, said. And I'm here today... Um, to talk about, you know what, I think this is, of all of the, well, the 30, almost 30 episodes I've done with you since uh, April, I think this is the first time, this is a topic that we have not uh, discussed. So I'm uh, really excited to uh, get into this conversation with Ken Childress here in just a few minutes. But before I do that, I want to say thank you to all of you that, uh, punched all the right buttons on whatever device it is that you are using so that you could join us today and listen to the Digital Doers podcast. And uh, also, certainly want to say thank you to HPE. They sponsor this podcast and allow us to have conversations like we're about to have. You know, HPE has a whole dedicated team of uh, experienced oil and gas solution providers. And um, if you go to hpe.com, you'll have an opportunity to learn all kinds of things about, about uh, the folks over there. Um, one of them, of course, is uh, I bet you can find something about their oil and gas experience and team. You also, uh, I'm sure, will have an opportunity to see and uh, learn a little bit about their Green Lake platform. And their Green Lake platform um, is their edge to cloud platform. And their their intent there is to make your your cloud experience as uh, uh, user-friendly, as uh, as easy, and as uh, effective as possible so you can access your data, your applications, wherever they may, re may reside. Um, and so, you know, uh, HPE has over uh, 12 years of consumption-based experience around... Uh, 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 on-premise cloud services. So uh, go take a look at hpe.com. Um, at the end of this episode, uh, if you happen to, when you're looking at it on your, wherever you get your, your um, podcasts, you'll see two links, and I'd really appreciate it if you would uh, go and take a look at those. One of them is take you about 10 seconds. It's a one-question survey. We're trying to gather a little data, so I would really appreciate it if you would uh, take just 10 seconds and go over there and answer that question. Um, and the other one is there's a link for you to leave me a review on um, what you're getting from the Digital Doers platform, what you like, or podcast, what you like, maybe what you don't like, would really like to hear from you. And so with that, I think we're going to move right in, and I want to introduce you to Ken Childress, and he's the Chief Strategy Officer for TerraDepth Incorporated. And so Ken has more than 25 years of executive experience 
developing and managing high-technology products and businesses, including managing our many years with hardware and software development projects. And uh, looks like all or the majority of Ken's experience is around marine autonomous systems and perhaps the technology that uh, that supports that. Um, before joining TerraDepth, Terra he was a founding executive and a board director at Harbor Wing Technologies, um, again, developer of autonomous, autonomous surface vehicles. Um, and he was all about uh, responsible for shaping and delivering the company's message about innovative, unmanned, wind-powered vessels. Um, and uh, he you know, shared those messages with uh, users of the technology, media, and the financial communities. Um, he also had responsibility for managing the intellectual property portfolio and development. And as a result of that, he has three patents and several trademark registrations. So maybe Ken will talk to us a little bit about that today. He also founded, he was a founding director of Ocean Aero, which supplied, or maybe still supplies, maybe Ken can tell us, a unique environmentally efficient ocean, autonomous ocean platforms, and then related services for maritime data gathering. Um, he again had some responsibility for planning, developing the infrastructure, intellectual property management, and then uh, serving as a, a general oversight around uh, at, at the executive level. He joined TerraDepth, which we're going to be talking a lot about today, in 2018 as the Chief Operations Officer, and obviously brings many years of experience to that in the unmanned marine systems business. Um, he is the company's Chief Strategy Officer, and um, TerraDepth's mission is to increase ocean knowledge through cloud-based, browser-driven ocean data management and visualization portal in a software solution I think they have called Absolute Ocean. Um, and they also, he's going to talk to us, we're going to learn about a lot about some autonomous underwater vehicles. Um, and so with that, I'm going to turn it over to Ken and uh, ask him to fill in whatever I left off. And, and if he wants to tell us anything about those patents that uh, that uh, that he was involved in. So welcome, Ken. Yeah, hi, thank you, Joanne. Appreciate the introduction. I think you you captured it pretty well. Um, you're right, been involved in the offshore autonomous business since uh, 2004. Um, we got uh, wrapped around opportunities there to develop offshore inter or offshore survey systems and uh, focused on environmentally friendly, friendly systems from the very beginning. The, uh, the harbor wing systems, as you mentioned, were, were wind-driven. Um, they were funded primarily by the U.S. Navy, and <clears throat> then uh, in 2010, the whole concept of funding for the Navy changed under a program that they referred to as sequestration, and uh, we kind of got sequestered out of business in a sense, but we <laughs> yeah. took a lot of the lessons learned with us, took them to Ocean Arrow, redeveloped a platform that is still today commercially viable and right. being used in both defense as well as offshore oil and gas and other observational maritime um, applications. It was a really unique platform in that it operates on the surface using wind and then folds its wing sail and goes underwater. So it can operate wow. both surface and subsurface that uh, to date 
is still the only platform of its kind that's uh, that's ever been attempted, and it's as I said, commercially successful. Wow! So uh, in and the, that, uh, the just, Ken, just it, to be sure, so the primary purpose is data gathering. The primary purpose is data gathering okay. and, and ocean observation. Okay. Or in uh, you know a government sense, they refer to it uh, even in the oil and gas industry as ISR, okay. uh, information surveillance and reconnaissance. And those platforms can stay out in the ocean for months at a time, can gather literally terabytes of data, can communicate via high bandwidth satellite systems. And so they effectively operate as uh, data centers and outposts in the ocean for collecting and disseminating data of all kinds. And the data they're gathering is uh, above and below water? They can gather data above and below water. In a sense, they're referred to many times as gateway platforms, and that is uh, that they operate they operate on the surface, but do exactly what you said, gather data below the surface, at the surface, and above the surface, and then can communicate that to, uh, to Earth systems via satellites. And since you said, I love this notion of the wings that kind of fold up, and then it becomes a fish, I don't know, that's not quite exactly right, probably. <laughs> sailfish. But uh, there, a sailfish, I guess. Um, so can you call these vessels home and they can try, or do you typically go get them? No, typically they're, they, you know, they operate in an unmanned sense where they're given a mission and then based on their level of autonomy or ability to operate alone, they go and perform that mission. So they, okay. they leave, they, they ah. perform their mission, they gather their data, they to some degree process that data, communicate that data and then return to wherever they're being tasked to return yeah. Or they can be effectively launched and recovered at, at sea because okay. they're not very large. They're fairly okay. portable. So the only time I think I've seen anything like that might have been in a James Bond movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In one of those somewhere, in one of those islands with the villain out there, you know, I think he had that's, something similar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, uh, you know, the, the addition uh, or the idea of a transformative platform, right? Yeah. They can yeah. do more than one thing at a time, right. but that's actually what they were. Or Excellent. what they are today. Excellent. Yes. Excellent. Okay. So then, then after uh, that was Ocean Arrow. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. That's correct. Okay. So that brings us up to Terra Depth. Right. Yeah. And so, tell me, was Terra Depth around prior to 2018 when you joined, or were you part of the founding? Yeah. So Terra Depth was founded in 2018 by a couple of ex Navy SEALs. Okay. Uh, Judd Kaufman and Joe Wolfel. Joe remains today as the CEO of the company. And they had, uh, after they uh, got out of the service, they formed a consulting group and they had been working with uh, a company called Seagate Technologies, which you may recognize as one of the the largest providers of data storage systems on the planet. In fact, about 50% of them are manufactured by Seagate. And they also have a very, very big hand in robotics so the question to Judd and Joe as they were working with the Seagate uh, uh, C-suite was, uh, you know, what are some of the big data pl- uh, uh, opportunities or challenges that are left on the planet? And uh, they went and did some research and came back and said, well, the largest unscathed data source on the planet is the ocean by far. We actually know very little about our ocean. Most people look at the ocean and see the top of the ocean and say, oh, there's the ocean. 
but uh, they don't realize that the ocean creates uh, a large percentage of the oxygen that we breathe. It disposes of a large percentage of the carbon dioxide waste that we produce. It catches just about everything that hits any stream, river, or beach. And uh, then it also has to sustain life of literally millions of different types of, of, uh, of life forms, flora, fauna, fish, <laughs> mammals, you know, the whole range. Right. And, uh, you know, it's a very life-bearing area for us. So uh, having a knowledge of that, the, uh, the topology of the ocean, we've only mapped, best case, 20% of the ocean to modern standards. The rest of it is a really good guesstimate. Um, so, you know, those were some of the issues that they felt needed to be addressed. Okay. So, yeah, I think that's, that's really fascinating. Um, and before I get too far along, this may not be highly relevant, but I do think it's, uh, fascinating. Your, your website at Terra Depth, I, I think I would like to have it as my, um, screensaver. Uh, it's great. Uh, the waves, the wave motion, kind of the gently rolling water. It's really beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a, a beautiful. And I think it's, you know, just a reminder if you go and just spend a few minutes there. Um, it is kind of a reminder of, I guess, the beauty, but also kind of the vastness and the mystery. I guess that's what I took away from that website is that that uh, photography or whatever is just, is just really beautiful videography, I guess it's just very beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it should be captivating. You know, yeah. the, the ocean is a, is a place of mystery and wonder. And, uh, like I said, many people just see the surface of it, but once you begin to understand what's below the surface, it's, uh, it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So let me, so tell us a little bit more about Terra depth. So since 2018, uh, so that's, four-ish years. So who are your clients or what industries are, uh, are you guys providing services or do you provide services and products? Uh, yeah, we're primarily a surface, a service driven company, but it's really all about the data. Um, what we're about is trying to help people make more sustainable choices by delivering ocean data in a, in a faster, better a greener way, and then preserving it and making it easy to access using uh, new technologies around cloud-based systems, as well as standard delivery systems like browsers, so that people don't have to learn new software, download software, or anything like that to be able to understand and use the data that's processed from the ocean, which is kind of the way that it's done today. Um, we're trying to integrate those solutions into a, uh, a, a vertically integrated solution that is what we call an ocean data as a service that is around gathering the data, processing the data, uh, putting the data on an easy to access platform, and then managing that data so that it's, it's there for all time to be accessed and used by all stakeholders that make up what is now referred to as the blue economy. Um, so from that perspective, our customers are, uh, we have uh, government uh, customers, both both defense and non-defense, and the whole um, food chain of stakeholders that that involves. Uh, offshore energy, wind, and oil and gas are probably the largest consumers of the topographical survey data that is produced by TerraDepth and, and, and produced by others and managed on our platform, Absolute Ocean. And then also academic and archaeological customers, those who are into the research and development and, and, and also 
uh, organizations like Map the Gaps uh, that are out to try to create a useful map of the entire ocean by 2030. And we are both a contributor and participant in those, uh, those types of activities. And, you know, archaeologically, there's a lot of stuff under the ocean out there that we need to find. And uh, there are significant organizations and individuals who are interested in funding the finding, the things that, uh, that have been lost or yet to be found. Okay. So you mentioned, you, you used the term blue economy. Mm-hmm. So say a bit more about that. What, what does that refer to? Well, it's, it's estimated that what is referred to as the blue economy, economy contributes approximately $4 trillion uh, annually to the Earth's economy. And that is simply stated, all business that touches the ocean. Uh, so if you can imagine, you know, every fish that's eaten, every ship that sails, every piece of cargo that's on those ships, uh, every uh, defense or military activity that happens, uh, all of the research and development, we're moving into areas, you know, a vast amount of our energy is produced offshore uh, in the oil and gas market, and offshore wind is starting to grow rapidly and will grow very rapidly in the next uh, two decades. There's also other interests like offshore mining, uh, you know, precious uh, minerals that we need in order to be able to sustain, you know, the growth even of the, uh, you know, of of newer, cleaner technologies are available in the ocean and need to be developed responsibly and okay. uh, without tearing it up. Okay, great, great. And so I'm kind of curious, that, so I'm going to want to talk a lot more about oil and gas, but before, so I'm wondering, when you're gathering your data, is there are there places in the ocean, are there organizations or um, industries that have this continuous data gathering, or is it Primarily, someone's got a project, they send you guys out to do, you know, uh, the data uh, gathering that might be needed for that project. Or is the, are there places in the ocean that are just continuously gathering data all the time? Yes and yes. Um, the, you know, a lot of uh, project data, you know, like for example, if there are, say, say there's an offshore wind farm that's going to be developed and leases have been let, then the developers of that offshore wind farm need to uh, go out and characterize the uh, the place where they're going to put their windmills. That means they need to map it. They need to gather information about the surface and subsurface of the bottom of the ocean. Uh, they need to establish where would be good places to install and not install. And they need to do environmental assessments to determine what kind of damage is going to be done to the environment as well as those things in the environment. Um, from an ongoing perspective, offshore oil and gas uses uh, pipeline surveys are a really good example. They have a embedded infrastructure, for example, all over the place that is anywhere from 50 to thousands of meters under the water. It needs to be examined. It needs to be watched. It needs to be determined if changes to it or the environment around it are happening. And those are ongoing efforts uh, that happen on a regular basis. So just about any kind of offshore construction or infrastructure requires offshore survey on a repetitive basis. So yeah, in both cases, both pre okay. and yeah. Okay. So there is some, I was just wondering. Um, and so when you, uh, I, I, I think I mentioned to you when we were talking uh, right before we started the actually recording this podcast, that for several years I had responsibility for some platforms, oil and gas platforms, offshore mm-hmm. California. And um, 
we, from an environmental uh, perspective, if we needed to, if we had a project or some kind and we were going to have a lot of traffic um, on the uh, on the water and out to, you know, to be there um, with the platform, doing the work on the platform or the pipelines, um, we, we had to um, consider uh, the, the whale migration. Uh, mm-hmm. Since this was in the Pacific Ocean, and <clears throat> and uh, so I assume uh, there's data about all kinds of, I guess, flora and fauna associated. That when you're doing these surveys, there's some there's a biological, environmental biological aspect of some of the data that you gather. Well, actually, you know, there's a lot of different categories of data gathering going on in the ocean right now. Terra depth typically focuses on. Uh, bathymetry and hydrographic data, but we also can pull in other data, environmental data, uh, meteorological data, uh, conditional data, and, uh, you know, actually provide and store and use that data too. But other platforms are specifically focused on exactly what you mentioned. Uh, You know, for example, looking for local mammal activity. That's very common, yeah. Okay, great, great. Um, And so you mentioned... Whether it's, uh, you mentioned, so before we get to, I do want to ask, because you said the growth in, um, not sure exactly how you referred to that, but the growth in um, offshore, sorry, what was, the growth was going to be very large in the next 10 to 20 years. And it was the growth in the blue economy, perhaps, or the growth. What, what, what? Could you remember what I'm referring to here? Well, yeah, the blue economy is always expanding, but I think what I specifically referred to there is as we look at offshore energy, in the past when we've said offshore energy, we've typically thought of oil and gas as being the offshore energy source. Right. Uh, you know, that that is obviously not going to go away anywhere anytime in the near future. But even most of the large ONG operators now are starting to turn their attention toward renewable energy right. and being able to operate and produce, you know, yeah. more sustainable energy. Right. And uh, as we move more and more away from oil and gas, we'll enter more and more into offshore energy collection via uh, windmills, uh, wave platforms, um, current platforms. All of these things can harness the um, the ocean's energy to produce electricity that we need and to help us move a little bit away from the uh, carbon sources that we're reliant on today Good to a large that degree. That we've used for a long time, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so... Um, so when you talk about this incredible growth that is going to happen, um, any indication, any predictions, or maybe there's some real live trends um, on what part of the world? Is there one part of the world where that is more uh, quick, uh, it has some accelerated growth, or is it just kind of everywhere? Well, there's three typical theaters, I believe, that I've seen. One is the European and UK theater which as far as offshore wind production is way ahead of everybody else. I mean, they started, uh, you know, a couple of decades ago, actually building significant wind farms. Uh, every coastal nation in the EU UK has an initiative to grow their wind farm and their production of offshore wind driven energy, as well as carbon re- uh, re- sequestration. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was going to say <laughs> requestration and then yeah. it makes sequestration all of a sudden. Yeah. Yes, you know, those types of efforts, too, that are byproducts of offshore wind production. Um, But at the same time, the the potential big gorilla in the room is the U.S. offshore energy. And the uh, initial 
you know, establishment has been slow, but uh, now we're starting to see leases all up and down the East Coast of the United States. Uh, there will be the first leases granted in the Gulf of Mexico very soon. And we're even looking at the deep waters off of the West Coast. And there are leases that will be granted offshore Oregon and offshore California uh, as soon as this month. So the development of the coast, both coast, east and west of the United States, are going to be uh, very large markets. Um, they And they will begin to develop quickly in the next decade. Also, uh, the Asian market, the South Koreans, the Japanese, and the Chinese are all heavily involved in offshore wind, and those markets are growing quickly too. So effectively, you know, the, the entire world is, is on the upswing as far as planning and development of offshore wind is concerned. And so from a uh, renewable energy perspective or classification, it is wind. Wind is way out ahead. Wind is way out ahead as far as offshore production is concerned. I, I, I mean, I think you could say that. Okay. Uh, I mean, I live in I live in Texas, and there are approaching eighteen thousand onshore windmills in the state of Texas. Very few people know that, but we not only lead the nation here in oil and gas production, but we lead the nation here in wind energy production. Also, the next closest state is California, with less than half the number of windmills. So there's going to be a lot of that knowledge transferred offshore into the Gulf of Mexico and the coasts because we have large working communities that have a lot of experience with, uh, you know, developing large offshore systems. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. So now tell us just a little bit now that we've got, um, you know, all kinds of perspective at a very high level. Um, tell us what you, I, I don't know if I'm uh, referencing this correctly, but you're Data collection vessels are called a- Autonom- autonomous underwater vehicles. Okay. AVs. And you refer to them as AXV or is that just the way? <clears throat> the AXV is a specific vehicle that we're developing right now. Okay. Uh, we use the X because it is a vessel that is designed to, you know, operate and support itself on the surface uh, while it charges and then to be able to go underwater and operate and collect data while it's underwater. Uh, we have patents uh, that are close to being issued right now around the concept of operation for operating two of these vessels, one on the surface and one below, in pairs. Okay. And so the surface vessel acts as a navigational communication and gateway system while the underwater system collects data, whether it's doing bathymetric or side scan or other type of data collection underwater. And then uh, as the vehicle underwater uh, runs out of power, they can switch places. The one on the bottom comes to the top, begins to recharge itself via an energy recharge system that we've developed, and then uh, they can carry on. So together in a pair, they can operate for extended periods of time and gather lots of data without having to have an expensive surface vessel there to tend their operations. Wow, as a support vessel of any kind. That's, That's right. interesting. Yeah, the so idea you- is to get the support vessel uh, out of the loop, and that yeah. lowers the cost of collecting that data by an order of magnitude. And maybe lowers the carbon footprint of the activity as well? By more than an order of magnitude. That's correct. Yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. The, the numbers, uh, the number that, uh, you know, of uh, carbon that's uh, eliminated by use of these types of systems, it, it goes from a whole lot to almost none. It's just Wow. wow. Yeah. So that is interesting. And so I assume when they trade places, if you will, when the underwater vessel uh, needs to recharge, 
and so that change trades places with the its pair, its mate, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's been on the, the surface, the water surface, then it's recharged with um solar. Is that how Nope, it it's is? not recharged with solar. It's actually okay. recharged with a small diesel generator. But the uh, uh, but the diesel generator basically has the carbon footprint of a Vespa. Um, oh, a large so operating big. surface vessel has the carbon footprint of a large operating surface vessel. <laughs> sure, sure, so, sure. Yeah. So that's interesting, right. really interesting. Okay. And so now you've got this, you know, that's one way this A times, you said it's an autonomous unmanned vehicle, I think is the way you... Underwater, yeah. Underwater, okay. Autonomous underwater vehicle. Um, but you use other vessels as well? Yeah, we do. We well, you know, we're primarily an autonomous underwater vessel company, but we also operate a fleet of Teledyne Gavia autonomous underwater vehicles that are produced by Teledyne. Okay. They're the world's most uh, commercially active autonomous underwater vehicle in its class. Okay. And uh, they're capable of operating down to a thousand meters, three thousand feet, wow. and uh, can gather a significant amount of data. They do require a small vessel at the surface to tend them. They're what we call low logistics vessels. Okay. They can be operated by, you know, a couple of people from a small vessel for several days, which also has a very low carbon footprint. Uh, and uh, they're very configurable and manageable, and uh, we can collect a lot of high quality, what they call special order data. Okay. And so the the AXV that will be uh, uh, Terra Depths uniquely, I think that's right. It's mm-hmm. yours. That's correct. Um, how big a vessel are we talking about? How big of a, a yeah? How big is well, that? Well, the AXV that we have that we're working with right now currently is about 28 feet long. Oh, uh, wow. It's approximately a little over three feet uh, in diameter. Um, and it uh, weighs uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 8,000 pounds when it's fully loaded. So it is not oh, wow. an insignificant vehicle, but it can be shore launched. So we can take it to any launch. We have a trailer for it. We can launch it from a boat ramp off a trailer. And then it can go make way itself on the surface until it gets to its uh, target area. And then it can submerge, survey, resurface, recharge, and do it again and again and again. And and do that for several days? Uh, Yeah. As a matter of fact, the one that we have right now can operate from uh, seven to ten days on the fuel load that it has. But it has a very small fuel load. That is approximately 15 gallons of fuel being spent in seven to 10 days. So as you can tell, it's not a lot of fuel to keep the vessel operating for a long period of time. Uh, And that, that, you know, that's just a matter of scaling up its uh, its available fuel source. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. I I don't think in my mind, uh, I don't know why, but I don't think in my mind I was thinking it was quite that large. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed, you know, the Gavius that we operate... Uh, they are, uh, they're nine inches in diameter, and when they're fully loaded, they're maybe, at the most, 13 to 14 feet long. Okay. Uh, so, again, those are smaller uh, vehicles that are designed to be easily transported and easily deployed and recovered. And uh, okay. But still, they're uh, very, very uh, capable in terms of data. Okay. You said we talked a lot about data, and the world today, certainly every part of our life, um, is we are increasingly more and more dependent on data. And um, so I heard you talking about, I think absolute ocean is the terminology mm-hmm. or the, the name of your uh, data platform. Your, um, right. And clearly it's important. You're trying to 
get the data that you're gathering with these autonomous underwater vehicles uh, to make that very accessible to folks and easy to use. And that's what Absolute Ocean does? Yeah, that's right. I mean, you mentioned earlier, uh, talking about one of your sponsors, what you referred to as an edged cloud system. Um, so effectively, what we're doing is we've built an edged cloud system ourselves, the, the edge being the AVs, the cloud part being Absolute Ocean. And Absolute Ocean has two primary components. One is to be able to manage data. So it doesn't matter whether we collected it or whether it's archived by an oil company or whether it's collected by another surveyor for a wind farm. Any of that data can be put into Absolute Ocean and stored and managed and then put into the right formats to be visualized in 2 and 3D imagery that can be accessed via any browser. So, wow. you know, anybody with a browser and an and a, and a access to Absolute Ocean can get in and view those files. They can view them. They can share them. They can mark them up. They can put them into a closed environment where only the people that they want to be able to see them can see them, or they can open them up to the general public where anybody with a access to Absolute Ocean could see them. Uh, we also include publicly uh, gathered data organizations like NOAA, uh, EMODnet, uh, and other organizations around the world gather a lot of ocean mapping data. And uh, we have currently a close to 3,000 ocean maps that have been collected by NOAA and other public sources in Absolute Ocean. And we think there are probably between 10 and 20,000 more available that we could bring in which would make Absolute Ocean the largest single access point for, look, for viewing ocean mapping data. So it's a very, very flexible platform um, that, uh, that can be used for all of those applications. Yeah, excellent. Because it's certainly, you know, it's all about uh, the, having the ability to store all that data. I know that's important, but for, for people like myself, it's all about turning that into information that I can actually use and that makes sense. That data becomes information and information becomes knowledge. Yeah. Uh, you know, I Excellent. taught my grandson to use Absolute Ocean in about 10 minutes. He's nine wow. years old. Wow. Yeah. Wow. He caught on quickly. That's cool. Right. Uh, he's one of those uh, digital natives that we talk about. <laughs> That's right. You know, but there's a whole new generation of knowledge workers out there now that expect Absolutely. that their data is going to be delivered when they, they fire up Chrome they put in a URL, they put their credentials in, and boom, they're supposed to be able to see what they want to see. Absolutely. And I'm the same way. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, not, I'm not a digital native, but I've certainly you know, had to travel the digital road for many, many years. Yeah. And uh, that's what I want. I don't want to have to go to a site and download data and then have some other piece of software that I have to learn how to use and fire it up to view that data or share that data. And then in order to get a hard copy of that data, I got to print off a PDF. I mean, it, it's like MapQuest. You know, if you remember that, uh, we all thought it was great until Google Earth came along. And then, you know, my Lord, you know, we had, we had it right there the way I just described it. That's right. the way we want ocean data to be yep. delivered. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. And so, um, you know, say just a little bit, because oceans are fascinating. Um, but as you mentioned, I can't remember the percentage, but maybe 20% maybe mapped. Is that, yeah, okay. That's, a, that's, um, a, that's being kind. And so what are the biggest barriers? Why, why is that? Is it just because it's so vast or what are the other physical barriers? Or You know, the, the, the sheer size of the ocean is, is the first thing. Yeah. 
Um, the second thing, of course, is, you know, operating at depth, uh, you know, the, you know, just 500 meters underneath the ocean will crush a lot of things. Um, the, you start talking about depths approaching 6,000 meters below the ocean surface, and it requires very, very strictly engineered systems to be able to survive at that depth. So it's a very hostile environment, both on the surface as well as under the water. It's corrosive. Uh, it can change in a moment. Um, you know, the, the currents that run underneath the ocean, all of these things have to be navigated. We put our AVs into areas that we got them down. We got them down to depth and then, and then determined that we couldn't operate them because there was too much current. Um, wow. That, you know, we, we didn't even know that from the surface. Yeah. So, you know, just the, the sheer uh, nature of the ocean is, is imposing. And um, if it was easy, you know, there would be a lot more people doing it. The data would be a lot more available. The thing that is is staggering is that we spend approximately 30 times as much per year exploring space than we do exploring our own ocean. If we we just uh, applied a fraction of the money, and I'm not saying space is bad. I mean, I grew up... I grew up in a family of people who worked in the space industry, and I've always been fascinated by that as myself. But there's so much to learn from the ocean, and if we just turned a fraction of what we spend on space toward the ocean, we would have our map of the ocean. We would much better understand what's there, and we would we would have a whole lot better uh, ability to teach those who are coming along in the future how to take care of it, because it's the heart and lungs of the planet. Yeah, that, the heart and lungs of the planet. I like that. Um, well, listen, thank you so much, Ken, for joining us today. I think it was very interesting. Everything from, you know, kind of a little bit of a prediction of what you see coming in the future, but also kind of grounding us in, um, what we, how little we really know today. Uh, but, um, as you say, there is no indication that, um, we aren't going to continue to look offshore to help us solve some of our really pressing um, challenges that we have. Um, so very, very interesting. Thank you so much for being Thank here. Thank you, Joanne. I appreciate the, uh, the opportunity to be here today. Yeah. And um, if nothing else, I, you know, there's a lot of really good information because I spent a little time, you know, kind of looking around on the TerraDepth website. But I, if, if for nothing else, you got to go check it out just to see the the homepage and the those uh, that video. It's a uh, it's uh, it's fascinating. But anyway, I know that's not. But it's more beautiful. To, hey, more to come. Can, more to gonna, come. Yeah, we're gonna we need to enjoy some beauty here. I mean, gosh, sure. uh, while we're doing all of this science stuff. Okay, um, thank you again, Ken. Uh, I want to say thank you again to HPE and uh, like I said, go check check that out. Uh, and take a look and uh, learn a little more about how maybe they can help you with some of your data. Um, so until, if you check out those uh, two links in the show notes, I would really appreciate it. And leave us a review and take that one question survey. Sure would appreciate it. Um, and until next time, when we will talk again about something uh, fascinating, say thank you again to Ken and so long. Come back next week for another venture into the real world of the best digital doers in the oil and gas industry. A production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.